Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, and now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support for the Australian Centre on China in the World, and for the first time in four years, this podcast episode comes with a language warning. In December 2018, there was a week that hawks in the Trump administration called "Fuck China Week" for the actions taken against China. But as one of our guests writes this week in the Economist, that's nothing compared to this July, which may be remembered as America's "Fuck China Month." Actions taken include sanctions on senior Chinese officials for atrocities against the Uyghurs, revoking Hong Kong's special status for trade and diplomacy, and the closure of China's consulate in Houston. Followed by the reciprocal closure of the U.S. consulate in Chengdu. To discuss this, we're joined by Oriana Scarlamastro, assistant professor of security studies at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, and Gaddy Epstein, the China editor at the Economist. Gaddy, let's start with you. What the fuck is going on, and how did this all devolve so far and so fast? Well, I was I was wondering if the language、uh, warning was related to me as a guest,、uh, but then I realized it's just my story that ran that that went to out to one million、uh, subscribers in the Economist this week、uh, in the very first sentence.、Um, I was pleased that that got by the、uh, the internal censors.、Uh, yeah, no, it's、uh, it's been quite a year, and I think、uh, where should we start in recent history is with、um, the the politics of the. Uh, coronavirus pandemic,、um, because obviously it's gone not so well here in America,、um, and、uh, President Trump has、uh, sought to blame China、uh, for it,、uh, and it's becoming a campaign issue.、Uh, it, it's suddenly become a who who was tougher on China, who will be tougher on China、uh, campaign issue, and they both have traded attacks Trump、uh, and Joe Biden. Uh, in campaign ads,、uh, on the other for being too friendly with Beijing,、um, and this is quite a turnaround、uh, from recent history when Trump was sort of holding back criticism.、Uh, not that he's ne- necessarily inclined to be too critical of、um, of authoritarians,、uh, and has cozy has been quite admiring of Xi Jinping, but he was holding back, and he said publicly in June that he was holding back sanctions on. Uh, on Chinese officials over Xinjiang because he wanted his trade deal, and he got you know a mini trade deal in January, uh, and uh, but then the dynamic shifted with this、uh, pandemic, and、uh, hawks in the administration uh, were uh, I think empowered a bit more than they had been,、uh, and we're starting to see the effects of that in the last few months. Now they've been taking actions throughout over the last few years, I should say. You know they they certain they've been part of this along with Australia. Um, this kind of global campaign against Huawei,、uh, they've been taking actions on that throughout.、Uh, they've been、um, pursuing uh, espionage uh, cases, uh, counter espionage strategy in the U.S.、Uh, via the FBI.、Uh, they're reviewing grants,、uh, grant of people who research Chinese re- American researchers for connections to secret Chinese money. All this has been happening in the backdrop,、um, and、uh, so it's not like they suddenly appeared. Fully formed、uh, just a couple months ago with a hawkish、uh, China strategy or China approach, but they were empowered to do、uh, even more. And now that brought us to 
the last couple of months and to what you call Louisa Fuck China Month, uh, which led to, let's see, what, what do we have? In the, well, you already listed a few of these things, uh, but not listed in there. Uh, even before, uh, even before, let's say the consulate closures, we started to see proposals floated that seem utterly outlandish, but are clearly an indication of where uh, some people in the administration are thinking. So there is, there was this story that uh, was leaked that they're considering this ban, travel ban to the U.S. on 92 million Communist Party members and their families, um, and people just responded that would never happen. I don't think it. You know, it's 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 not before the president or anything like that. But it was just an indication that now almost any idea that the hawks have, uh, the the hawks and, and Trump's administration have uh, that they would like to execute, uh, they're going to try and and put forward. And now you have the election just a few months away. Uh, you have both candidates are going to be incentivized to continue proving which one is tougher on China. And I think you have quite a dynamic for uh, for more action and uh, a little bit of a worrying dynamic uh, where the president is concerned, where he could be tempted into even more dramatic action. Oh, yeah. And I mean, when it comes to the closure of the consulates, I mean, this is, you know, it's kind of like a diplomatic earthquake. It doesn't happen that often. And the way that it happened this time, I think, was sort of particularly gripping with the sort of it when they shut the Chinese embassy in Houston, you know, staff members rushed out to Home Depot and bought barrels and were burning documents. And then when the US consulate in Chengdu shut, there was a live stream and people were watching it like some kind of, you know, diplomatic reality TV show. But, you know, as Gadi said, this has been going on a, a long time. Um, you know, the US, although it said China's activities in Houston are sort of a microcosm of a broader network of individuals in more than 25 cities. I mean, they've known this for a long time. Why do you think this happened at, in this, you know, this, this week, this month? So timing is always difficult. I think people have this misunderstanding in, in Beijing and elsewhere that because the United States hasn't responded in the past, there's less of a likelihood we'll respond in the future. But if you look at U.S. history, it's actually the opposite. Right. If you look at the United States fails to respond, fails to respond, whether we're talking about Chinese militarization in the South China Sea or we're talking about these non-traditional collectors that that Beijing you know, sends to the United States, what ends up happening is there's a boiling over of frustration in the United States after not doing something for so long. And then the United States tends to overreact. Now, I'm a China expert. I'm not a U.S. expert, but this is sort of what, what I see happening right now in the United States. There are legitimate concerns, national security concerns, uh, that, the, that the closing of the consulate is meant to represent. As you mentioned, China has been uh, engaging not only in influence operations in the United States, but does send non-traditional collectors in the form of academics, researchers, journalists to the United States. The U.S. knows this. Um, and hasn't sort of responded strongly to it. Now, ideally, uh, the Trump administration, and maybe they did this and we don't know, but ideally what they would have done is something like what Obama did with the cyber espionage is on a one-on-one -on -one private conversation, present evidence to the Chinese, you know, tell them to stop or else we would have to escalate and give them, you know, an opportunity to, to change their their method. So while I think the you know the closings of the consulate was a extreme step, what it's meant to do is signal to China that the United States is is sick of this 
type of uh, strategy that China has been pursuing uh, for decades, and uh, the United States wants China to stop. Um, as you saw, what China did in response is, is close their consulate. This is also what leads to, I think, inefficiencies in the Trump administration's policies. Because when the United States does something and China responds like that, it, prevent, it, it presents this view to the rest of the world that there's some reciprocity. Like that China is doing something uh, legitimate as well. But this is not the case because the United States does not send people in the form of academics and journalists, et cetera, to China to engage in collection against against the, the Chinese government. So uh, it would have been better, I think, for the United States to uh, build a coalition as well. Maybe Singapore recently, there's a new story that you know they have similar problems. We know Australia has similar problems. So that it looks like the United States is standing on, you know, uh, you know, firm ground when it complains about these types of activities. Hmm. So, it, I mean, in the past you've described this as sort of the, the right action for the wrong motives. Um, and what do you mean by that? Well, I think in general, there's this view that there is a consensus in the United States right now uh, that China is a national security threat and we are in a great power competition with China. I think that oversimplifies some significant differences between a conservative Republican approach and a liberal Democratic uh, approach. Now, you know, please, you know, pardon this vast generalization, uh, but, you know, I'm lucky enough to engage with both Democrats and Republicans. I myself am a Democrat, but I work at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a conservative think tank in Washington, D.C., I'm in the military myself, which tends to be a conservative institution, and I'm also an academic. You mentioned I'm at Georgetown. Today is actually my last day. I start at Stanford tomorrow, and, and universities are traditionally liberal institutions. So I hear the, the China debate from both sides. And what I'll tell you is this. The Trump administration represents maybe an exaggeration, but does represent a traditional sort of Republican view of this threat, which is China is a th an inherent threat because of the Communist Party. And they are a threat to sort of the values of the United States. So if you look at the national security strategy of the United States, the 2017 strategy, it mentioned values 33 times. Now, my personal view, and I think a lot of sort of Democrats or liberals view is that Xi Jinping had a choice. He chose a strategy in many cases that, you know, was against reform or, get, you know, against progress and, and created some strategic challenges for the United States, like his aggressiveness in the South China Sea and vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. But he could make a different choice. And we could continue what we've had in the past, which are useful, cooperative, peaceful relations with the United States. So unfortunately, I think this Trump administration is you know, has these views that, you know, we hoped that the United States had learned its lessons, right? One, regime change, you know, pushing regime change would be good for the United States. And, you know, that I thought we learned that lesson. Two, that the Chinese people would welcome the United States with open arms if we were trying to undermine their government. There's this very simplistic view that, you know, over a billion people in China are just waiting for the United States to help them overthrow the Communist Party. Now, I don't want to be apologetic for many of the things that the party does, but to say that they are a totalitarian regime that provide no freedoms to their people, you know, that that's just that's just not the case. And so I think this administration, in addition to, you know, being exaggerated in their approach, 
They also just want to poke China in the eye for the sake of confronting China. They think undermining China uh, will help us in the competition, will help the United States in the competition. And I disagree. I think the competition is about winning power and influence around the world. It's not about the bilateral relationship with China. And that means building more international institutions, improving our relationships with partners and allies, things that this Trump administration has no interest in doing. Um, Gaddy, I wanted to ask you about the kind of knock-on impact of the closure of the U.S. consulate in Chengdu. I mean, this comes at a time when we've also seen, you know, the mass expulsions of 13 American journalists in China, the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, after Chinese state media workers had restrictions placed on them in the U.S., I mean, how is that going to impact China policy in the U.S.? Do you think we're also sort of heading towards this informational crisis where you know, we already had very little insight into what's happening within the leadership, but now even less so? Yeah, I think that's a risk. I, I actually do want to, I think, jump in a little bit on Ariane, what Ariane was saying about the different approaches to why we should be, you know, quote unquote, tough on China or why, uh, why there's a hawkish consensus in Washington but maybe not unanimous thinking about uh, why that's wise. Uh, we're going to see some of this playing out between the two candidates for president. And we're going to see over the next few years a uh, battle between those two modes of thinking. Did Xi Jinping have a choice? Could he have gone a different direction and reformed? I'm more sympathetic to the view that sort of the mask has come off of what China is under communist rule. And this is the view that I'm very sympathetic with, uh, with Hawks and the administration. They have rightly been frustrated at years of uh, a kind of accommodationist thinking towards China, where there was a bit of a, whether it was naivete or a kind of a self-serving willingness to turn a blind eye. But for one reason or another, policymakers in America and in other countries, and I would say economic uh, considerations are a major one, chose not to uh, impose costs on China's behavior. And so this is the part where I, I have some sympathy with the approach of the hawks in this administration, that what they want to do is call out China for what it is. And I think they've done that. I mean, they may have gone too far in the language uh, for sure, but I mean, broad strokes, I think they're directionally correct. And then say, look, we you have to recognize that they are a threat in terms of espionage, hacking, uh, more concerning to me, limits on freedom externally, uh, you know, exporting censorship, cowing businesses around the world from saying anything about critical about whether it's Xinjiang or Hong Kong. These are things that I think are very concerning. And uh, I think it's it's useful that they're calling that out. And we, we have these uh, recent four speeches by uh, principal officials of the administration, uh, the National Security Advisor, Bob O'Brien, Christopher Wray, the head of the FBI, Bill Barr, the Attorney General, and Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, that listed a bunch of specifics um, of cases that I think people should be concerned about, and it kind of makes people alert to uh, the threat that China poses. Now, they use that to uh, kind of overreach in their rhetoric about what they're describing. So then you get to the issue of something like, are the actions the right ones to take? And this is where we get to something like the consulate closures. It's unclear to me. I mean, we don't know everything that the administration knows. You know, when they close Houston, they say that it was a hub of not just espionage, but also influence activities, that they're recruiting people, but they're also using uh, consulates, not just that one, uh, as a base of operations for intimidating people to not criticize China, for instance. We don't have any sort of metrics around that. We don't know how pervasive that problem is. Uh, so it's really hard to tell whether this kind of dramatic action, which was predictably going to result in the closure of 
a major asset in, in China for the U.S., we don't know whether it was really a wise choice. And that's why I say this week in The Economist that, you know, that I think the speech has added up to uh, an attitude and not a strategy. Uh, I think most of these actions that they're taking, they read to me like these are ideas they had on a list of ways that they could poke at China. And uh, it's not clear to me that they cohere in, into a strategy. And that's what we need. We, I think it's uh, we being America, but also uh, you know, Australia and other allied democracies need a coherent approach uh, to, uh, to dealing with China, to when it's appropriate, standing up to China. Uh, we're, we're definitely not there. And I think where we were before was extremely insuffi- you know, was insufficient, disappointing. America is the only country in the world that I think has taken any significant action in response to the atrocities in Xinjiang, for instance. I mean, there have been other countries that have said they're going to have open arms for refugees. You know, They're going to welcome in refugees. That's very admirable. But in, uh, other than a statement or two issued, we've not seen much punitive action, much response, any imp- imposition of costs. On China. To, to kind of go to the next question, I mean, it, it somewhat undermines the the administration's approach, though, when you have the, the president, uh, according to John Bolton, at least, saying to Xi Jinping, go ahead and build the camps. It's the right thing to do. Um, Absolutely. I broadly agree with what you're saying there, that, you know, we've had 30 years of engagement. I, sorry, not to I, I, uh, I think there's a huge difference between what Hawks and the administration are thinking and saying and what the president does. You know, it's a fundamental and sort of catastrophic uh, fatal flaw, you could say. Uh, there's no way to have a strategy uh, yes. with this president. Which was maybe why you end up with an attitude rather than a strategy. But to get to that strategy and, and how it might work um, for a future administration, I agree with your premise that for 30 years, the assumption has been that by engaging um, with China, uh, we can at least moderate Beijing's approach or possibly make them more like us. Now, that clearly hasn't worked out. Um, and in the past year, what we've seen from China is, um, you know, we've had this national security law imposed in Hong Kong. They're already starting to lock up kids for online posts. I mean, it seems that China just doesn't care what the rest of the world thinks about it. Uh, and in yesterday's Politburo meeting, they referred to dealing with problems as like a protracted war, this Maoist phrase. Um, so, I mean, for the US and other powers, how can China's behaviour be moderated from the outside if it seems that it doesn't really care? I, I want to go back to this issue of engagement, you know, whether or not engagement has worked, right? So the, the, this is, there's a lot of conventional wisdoms that were wrong in the United States. And when we say engagement didn't work, basically what people are saying is, if you had hopes that engaging with China would turn them into a liberal democracy, you are wrong. Now, I don't know, I guess that was the U.S. policy. I remember hearing about that, you know, when I was an undergrad, having taken one course about modern China and knowing already that that seemed like a ridiculous assumption. But that's different than saying engagement hasn't changed China's behavior at all, or we can't shape China's behavior at all. Because while Xi Jinping has regrettably uh, backslided on on a lot of sort of political reform, you cannot say that China is not freer today than it was in the 1970s. And, you know, when it comes to shaping China's behavior, deterrence has worked, right? China has not used force against another country. And my view is that's because of the presence of the U.S. military. If you read Chinese military writings, all they talk about is what is the United States going to do and how that impacts, you know, the likelihood of victory in different contingencies. So we know that we can shape China's behavior. The question is, what is the most effective way of doing so? And cost and position whether it is to get them not to use force, whether it is to get them to change policies at home, has never worked, 
right? Deterrence by punishment has never worked. It's always been deterrence by denial. You have to make it hard for them to achieve their goals, not more costly for them to achieve their goals. And when it comes to internal sovereignty issues like Hong Kong, Tibet, Xinjiang, I think you're absolutely right that there is no cost that the outside world could impose that would convince the Communist Party it's it's worth risking the loss of you know those territories. I I've said many times if you tell Xi Jinping today that he could have Taiwan, but he would lose his navy, he would go for Taiwan, right? So that's that's the difficult thing is the, those costs. We just we just don't have the ability to impose those costs. Now to go back to what Gaddy said, I completely agree about that frustration among China specialists. You know, I as well during the Obama administration, though you know I loved President Obama, was so frustrated with their approach to China. I felt like this view that you could build goodwill in certain issue areas and then you know cash in that goodwill to get Chinese cooperation in other areas, you know, was just not how China does business. You know, so we don't want to go back to that of just you know letting them do whatever they want. But we have to ask ourselves, what are we trying to achieve? Are we just trying to, you know, tell the world what they're doing in Xinjiang is bad? Or do we actually want to improve China's human rights record? And those lead to different strategies. And in my main complaint, and going to what Gaddy said, I completely agree. It's an attitude, not a strategy, is that the administration does not seem particularly interested in actually improving the U.S. position in the world vis-a-vis China, uh, and doesn't seem interested in actually wanting a better future for China. Because it's my view that it should not be U.S. policy, like a policy of containment or confrontation against China, to try to hold down the Chinese state. There are hundreds of millions of people that still live in poverty, and it should not be U.S. policy to try to keep them there. Um, so, so I think we do need a better strategic approach. The United States absolutely has to call China out on a lot of these behaviors, has to be a leader in saying that, you know, we don't stand for these sorts of things. But we have to ask ourselves, what is our ultimate strategic objective? You know, like imposing costs or you know, prohibiting travel of certain individual sanctions. Does it get us to where we want to be? Uh, I do think naming and shaming uh, Politburo members is whether or not it's going to actually change policy within China, which, of course, I, I think you're quite right, Horiana, that they're going to do what they want to do and what they feel is in their interest. I still think that there's a purpose in that. There's a moral purpose in it. And more the countries uh, around the world engage in that kind of uh, behavior where they are publicly calling out China and China's leaders sanctioning individual Politburo members or what have you, at least that takes us uh, in the conversation in the right direction. Uh, I agree. It's a really difficult problem thinking about what could be done to improve the situation for human rights on the ground in China. But we're, we're actually in a worse position if you're looking at we and like, globally speaking. China, I would say there are many people in China who are less free now than they were uh, 15 years ago. That's quick. I think that's very clear. Yes, much more free than in the 1970s, but I think there's a lot. There's a lot of people in China that are less free than they were 10 or 15 years ago. Things are going in the wrong direction. And externally, you know, I I, I do think you're right that that uh, external pressure is it is is not going to necessarily solve that problem. But the lack of external pressure certainly hasn't been helpful. And since the entry into WTO. Uh, since uh, pre- since the global war on terror, uh, since President Bush putting uh, President Bush the uh, putting the East Turkestan Islamic movement on 
the terror, the state's State Department's uh, terrorist watch list uh, in 2002. Um, these are all, you know, we, we've been on a road, and we were until this last few years, on a road in the West of being much more accommodating to China and not really challenging them on human rights. And so when I say impose costs, uh, I don't necessarily mean like close a consulate, uh, but I do mean that in certain areas where you you create friction, call you know, call out what they are doing, uh, try to hold them account, hold them to account publicly at least. Oriana, on the Chinese internet, there's, there's been this phrase that's been circulating uh, from Chairman Mao: "Cast away illusions, prepare for struggle." And I mean, you've argued that. It's not that petty politics have escalated into security and military concerns. It's actually the other way around. Security threats came first. I mean, what do you think are the motivations that have been driving China's sort of much more aggressive stance in recent years? I mean, if we look at it from the Chinese perspective, why are they behaving the way they are now? So the first sort of order explanation, the simplest explanation, is military capability. China has had a certain position on, for example, the South China Sea, East China Sea, border disputes with India and Taiwan, you know, for decades. The issue is, and what many people maybe don't realize, is it isn't until relatively recently that they had any capability to exercise their views. So if you look back, you know, just 20 years ago, uh, or even 15 years ago, in a lot of cases, you know, Chinese ships didn't have any air defenses on them, so they couldn't sail beyond visual range of the coast because they had to rely on, on ground-based systems to protect them. Chinese pilots can't fly at night, can't fly over water. Uh, they don't have platforms that have the capabilities to even make it, you know, down to the South China Sea, let alone engage in sustained operations there. And so what we see in the, you know, around 2009, is a lot of platforms, a lot of capabilities coming online for the first time. China conducts its first air-to-air -air refueling, which allows aircraft to go farther distances, I think in 2012. And so all of a sudden, the Chinese military can operate in these places that they have said for a long time, they believe that they have sovereignty. So we see increase in, in frequency and in intensity of operations. And then at the same time, we have an Obama administration that does not respond. Right. So when China then builds 3,200 acres of land in the South China Sea and militarizes those outposts, you know, the United States does nothing. So in the Chinese view, this is kind of like, you know, a carte blanche, like, OK, I guess, you know, the United States is not very interested in this area. I mean, even President Trump, as far as I know, has never brought up the South China Sea with Xi Jinping and uh, until recently has and never even tweeted about it. So I think, you know, Beijing if you talk to you know Chinese strategists, they will say the United States says everything is important to the United States. But then you actually you have to look at U.S. behavior to see what is actually important. And what they you know devised is that none of this is actually really important to the United States. We always say we're pivoting, we're rebalancing, you know, we're doing all these things, but in practice we didn't respond. So the first order condition was all of a sudden they had these capabilities for the first time. Then the United States didn't respond, so they thought, oh, good, you know, we can, you know, continue to use coercion as a primary tool in our toolkit to get smaller and secondary states in the region to acquiesce to our demands. And now you have the Trump administration that comes in and says, no, we don't want you to use, you know, coercion anymore. And the Chinese view is like, well, we've been doing this for, you know, now over a decade, you know, what has changed? So in many cases, 
you know, what has changed for China is just that their military has gotten more capable. Even if you look at, you know, we say, oh, but look, they're doing all these exercises and they didn't do those before. They couldn't do joint exercises before the military reforms of 2013 because they didn't know how to do any sort of joint operations. So that's the sort of simplest explanation, followed by the fact that they didn't get a lot of pushback. Uh, and now we have, like, on top of that, a slight increase because of COVID. Because China historically, when it feels like other countries think it is weakened by some sort of internal issue, sort of preempts any exploitation of that by being overly aggressive and overly assertive to try to reestablish their deterrence. So we saw them do this, you know, against India plenty of times, you know, from the Mao era to today, that when they thought the Indians thought something was happening inside of China that would give India an opportunity to press their claims, then, then China was overly aggressive. So I actually think that what we're seeing uh, more recently in terms of Chinese aggression is uh, trying to China trying to reestablish a deterrent because it feels weak. Uh, but as we know, the world has kind of responded uh, by really identifying China now as an aggressive threat. And so I think this strategy on the part of Beijing has has backfired. Mm. Now, now thinking maybe um, you've, you've just landed in Australia, Oriana, so you're now uh, happily with us in a middle power. Um, from the US and the, the China perspective, this is all looking fairly clear. But from the for countries like Australia, which has a third of its trade with China, um, that are very much caught in the middle, I mean, uh, there have to be concerns about how decoupling practically could work, uh, or if it's even possible at all. Um, so you have Pompeo going around saying that um, you know it's it's about choosing between freedom and democracy uh, versus an authoritarian uh, uh, tyranny, an authoritarian regime. I mean, ha- how is that sort of emotional blackmail going to work out for for the Trump administration? Because um, you know, for countries like Australia, it isn't a straightforward choice, and 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 simply it seems can't be. Right. I think this this highlights just another outdated. Kind of U.S. policy, U.S. thinking. So the United States, besides wanting to always work with like like-minded nations, there is this view that to be competitive in any region in the world, you don't need to have power and influence everywhere. You just need to have power and influence with like the one or two countries that we think are the most strategically important. So you'll see the United States obviously prioritizing its relationship with Australia, you know, Japan. Uh, in, in Asia, while China is prioritizing its relationship with everybody. So if you ask, you know, is China, has China outcompeted the United States in Central Asia? Has China outcompeted, you know, the United States in Southeast Asia or in Africa? I would say no. I would say the United States for a very long time wasn't even competing. When's the last time the president had a state dinner for an African leader in the United States? So China's strategy has been, and I think it's it's effective, especially because of international institutions and the advent of multilateralism, to get the numbers, right? Maybe they don't have Japan, but they have 30 other countries in Asia. And so this goes back to to uh, the point Getty made about the United States standing up uh, for the Uyghurs. You know, when the United States brought to China a letter signed by dozens of states saying, you know, we condemn your treatment of the Uyghurs, China turned around with a letter signed by more countries. And Muslim countries say, and these countries say we're doing a great job, right? So in addition to, you know, not only wanting to cooperate with countries that are exactly like us, the United States needs to think about broadening this camp, right? So I hear this all the time, like we're going to work with, you know, like-minded states and democracies. And of course, our relationship with countries like Australia, you know, those relationships are paramount and important, but it leaves out, you know, Vietnam, it leaves out Singapore. 
And then it also creates these weird dichotomies. Like, yes, India is a, is a democracy, but is it liberal? Like, is, is that, is it, you know, is that really a like-minded state in many ways compared, you know, to how the United States thinks about things? And then we also see backsliding in the United States on those issues. So I think we have to think about our coalitions in a more innovative fashion. And we also have to think about our alliances in a more innovative fashion. You referred to in your question this issue of economic reliance that Australia has on China. Currently, our alliance structure is about military defense. But that is no longer the only threat that countries can pose to each other. A country now can really severely limit the sovereignty of another by other means. You don't have to physically occupy Australia to influence their foreign policy or to limit the choices that Australia feels that it has. So maybe we need to rethink our alliances. You know, maybe we need to have, a, you know, an economic resiliency aspect of those alliances such that if China threatens not to send tourists to Australia or not to send students to Australia because they're upset about something, and we know Australian universities you know, rely heavily on those Chinese students, that the United States retaliates by saying we won't accept Chinese students. Maybe our mutual defense should move beyond the military to try to disincentivize some of these other coercive activities that China engages in. And if the United States, instead of saying it's between democracy and autocracy, I think we need to change the dynamic and say it's between sovereignty and autonomy and dependency. That the United States wants countries that have the autonomy and the sovereignty to make the decisions that are best for them. China wants countries to be dependent on China so China can shape their choices. If that is not only the US rhetoric, but actually you know, what the United States does in action, I think countries would be uh, much more likely to support US efforts uh, across the board versus this dichotomy of you know, democracy, autocracy, or capitalism, communism, economic benefits or security benefits that we are, that, that Washington is currently promoting. Mm. Now, Gaddy, I wondered if, if you could talk to the, the position this puts um, Western companies and supply chains in. I mean, if you're faced with economic statecraft from China um, on the one side and, uh, you know, from a broad range of states, even the EU's um, Chamber of Commerce uh, in China is saying that uh, decoupling is now extending to a, a whole range of new fields. Um, so what does this mean for um, for Western companies? I mean, are they still going to push for engagement or, or is this uh, something that they'll just have to adapt to? Uh, it's very worrying for them. I think uh, they have a number of different issues. Uh, I wrote about one of those issues. Uh, going back to the Uyghurs for a second, uh, you know, on forced labor, I talked to industry groups uh, that source from China uh, for footwear like Nike or uh, clothing and other other companies, uh, and they're uh, you know they're quietly trying to work on this issue. They say, but they uh, they won't say anything publicly about whether they're pulling, let's say, uh, production out of China. Quietly, that's what businesses are looking at, at doing is diversifying their supply chains. Uh, but they don't want to say anything because they don't want to upset China. And that sort of is a microcosm of, of uh, kind of the issue we're talking about here is that they have no leverage uh, over China or they feel they have no leverage. An important point that the businesses made to me that I did take on board and I think is, is valid is that uh, it will be tif difficult for them to act uh, on anything without uh, the support of governments and without... Uh, governments working together. And so to Oriana's point about alliances, I think that's that's crucial. And of course, this president, President Trump, hasn't been exactly, um, that was, I wouldn't say that was has been job one for him is to cultivate allies. Uh, and this is where, you know, Joe Biden has talked about 
uh, that that'll be part of his strategy. And that's what his advisors talk about is uh, working with, uh, with allies and not just, I mean, they didn't say just democratic allies, but they're talking about the economic heft of a number of countries put together can actually maybe uh, push China on some issues. My question is about, about a Biden presidency uh, is it's easy to say that now, but the difficulty in facing up to China is that there are costs that you impose on yourself uh, when you decide to say that you're going to uh, withhold something from China. They're definitely going to withhold something from you. You know, ideally, you'd maybe have the attitude <laughs> that some of these hawks have in the administration, combined with a desire to actually work with allies um, on a strategy. Uh, and then maybe you'd be getting somewhere. But I'm not sure whether we can put that kind of um, Frankenstein together. If I could just highlight one thing, you know, based on what Gaddy said, I mean, the biggest issue, and I think the Trump administration with its rhetoric is trying to fix this issue, is that the American people don't really care, don't really see China as a threat, the same degree that maybe the experts in Washington do. A recent poll from the Chicago Council um, showed that I think it was like 12% of Americans thought Asia was the most important region in the world. And the majority of Americans still thought the Middle East was the, you know, the most important. And so part of what I think the Trump administration is trying to do with all this really bombastic rhetoric about the totalitarian regime and the threat to, you know, the U.S. way of life is to try to get Americans on board. Because, you know, Getty's absolutely right. Politicians, you know, they're going to be wary about bringing costs on the American people that maybe aren't necessary. I mean, just think about the U.S. COVID response, where, where the United States is unwilling to shut down economies, letting you know hundreds of thousands of people die because you know it's politically unpopular. So now you want to bring China into the picture, and and the average American is going to think, I don't want to deal with this. What you want, not only economically but also militarily? You think we should fight a war against a nuclear power? with like the, one of the most sophisticated militaries in the world over what? Like a couple of rocks somewhere? So, you know, this has been a big issue for everyone in Washington that's trying to get people around the United States to care about the China issue. And I think, uh, you know, congressmen and senators ask me all the time how we can get the American people to really focus on this. And, you know, I always cop out and say, I'm not a U.S. expert, I'm a China expert. I'm just telling you what the threat is and you guys figure it out. But I think that's what the Trump administration is trying to, to get to. Because once Americans think that someone is coming for us, the costs do not matter, right? Like if China sunk an aircraft carrier tomorrow, you know, every American from the most liberal in, in California to the most, you know, conservative, uh, you know, in the heartland of America would be gunning for Beijing. Uh, so it's not really the costs that are the issue. It's the, the will and the narrative about why this is important right now. So, Oyana, um, Oyana, I mean, you mentioned the word war, and I, I really, I'm going to put you both on the spot now. I mean, Gaddy, yes, no answer. Are we heading for military confrontation? Uh my answer would be, I wouldn't rule it out. And I'm not talking about in the months ahead, uh, but years down the road, and I've, I've been saying this actually since the, umbre the Umbrella Revolution in Hong Kong or the Umbrella Movement, since it turned out not to be a revolution. In 2014. Yeah, in 2014. The way that Xi Jinping responded to that, which was unbending and zero compromise, should have signaled to anybody that 
there is no future for uh, sort of integration of Taiwan. I mean, of course, I think the idea of Taiwan ever uh, kind of agreeing to a one country, two systems approach with China was kind of a fantasy in the first place, but it was one that was maybe entertained a generation or two ago, and it's not now. And I, I don't see where this goes other than eventually, I think under Xi Jinping, uh, you know, possibly a military uh, an invasion of Taiwan at some point. Uh, you're, I'm not saying like months from now, but it's hard to see a way out of the Taiwan question uh, without a military component. And that implicates the United States, of course, and it's sort of implicit security guarantee, uh, which some people are talking about trying to make an explicit uh, security guarantee. That's one of the things that's, you know, being discussed now. Uh, and I, you know, so that's, I would say it's possible. It's within the realm of possibility, yes. And Oriana, I know that you have said um, that the potential for armed conflict between US and China now is much higher than it ever was between the US and the Soviet Union uh, during the Cold War era, and that armed conflict in Taiwan will certainly take place in Xi Jinping's tenure. I'll put you on the spot as well. When will that happen, do you think? Yeah, so going back to my response about Chinese aggressiveness, when I mentioned that I thought capabilities was a primary driver, I think we can apply the same logic to Taiwan today. So China, until very recently, didn't have any capability to engage in joint operations. So this is the ability of your Navy and your Air Force to operate together, for example, something that is necessary if you're doing an amphibious landing on Taiwan. And in 2013, Xi Jinping took a look at his military forces and said, you know, we have all this fancy stuff, but you guys are poorly trained, you are not ready, right? You're not prepared for military struggle, and the Army which is, you know, in many cases, if you look at the conflicts China's going to fight, none of them, besides a Korea contingency and maybe India border, would be, you know, army would have any significant role, is so dominant in the system and had been, and every leader tried to fix that so China could have an effective fighting force to take Taiwan by force. And so Xi Jinping did this just amazing thing in which he threw out the whole system. You know, it's like he basically broke down the whole military structure and said, we're restructuring everything. If the army won't give up their influence, I'm basically changing the organization and kicking them out. So this restructuring, you know, began about six years ago, and there are these steps to when they think they'll finish. So I have written, and I wrote in the LA Times in January, that in my discussions with the Chinese military, they think in a year or two, they'll be able to conduct an amphibious assault against Taiwan successfully. Now, military experts like myself think they need more time. You know, I think, you know, they're not ready. Maybe by 2025, 2028, they would be ready. But the point is that now, I think that's what's holding Xi Jinping back in many cases, is the fear of failure. He doesn't want to fail. Um, and people always say, well, you know, the United States, if the United States was committed to this issue, that would deter China. Maybe 10 years ago, but the United States is losing its conventional superiority in a Taiwan contingency. And so if you ask the Chinese military today, well, you know, what would you do if the United States intervened? They, they would tell you we would still win. And so the United States needs to enhance its deterrent not only by signaling its commitment to defend Taiwan, but its ability to defend Taiwan. And one of the main reasons that ability has been weakened is because the U.S. bases that the United States needs to operate in such a contingency are now basically 
we operate out of those uh, if China lets us, because China has the missile capability to basically render those inoperable. And so for those reasons, I think Xi Jinping has said, uh, you know, that he wants to see this reunification. I agree with Gandhi that peaceful reunification is not working. Everyone in China knows that polling in China suggests that there is support for armed reunification. So I think when they're when they believe that they can do it successfully is when it's going to happen. And so I would give it, you know, probably another eight years at the most. Uh, I agree with that. I, uh, for another story, recently I talked to a, an expert who conducts war games uh, on this on just this question. It says that now, whereas five years ago, when he was conducting these scenarios, uh, and assuming, by the way, U.S. intervention in these, the U.S. was winning, and now they are losing in those scenarios. These are ones where you are anticipating five to ten years in the future. But he was of the opinion that he he's not sure that the blue team, the, the, the U.S., would win now uh, if it were right now. Of course, Xi Jinping doesn't want to, to go in on a 50-50 gamble. Uh, he definitely wants certainty, you would imagine, or near certainty of success. And I think the other variable that I would add in there is, and uh, this is what I was uh, talking about back when the umbrella movement happened, is you anticipate a moment when uh, legitimacy uh, feels weak, when there's uh, maybe domestic unpopularity uh, potentially for the party, maybe the economy takes a downturn. You know, China's facing a demographic crisis in the next decade uh, as it gets much older, much very quickly. Uh, you know, if some of these other pressures are brought to bear on the Communist Party and they feel that they need not just to, uh, you know, a nationalist cause, but also sort of like a wag the dog scenario, you can see that that could be an impetus as well. Uh, but of course, they're not going to make a choice to invade Taiwan just based solely on that. But that could influence the timing, in my view. Ariana Getty, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Graham. And yeah, it was really good to be with you. Me. You've been listening to Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, Ariana Skyler Mastro and Gaddy Epstein. Thanks also to my co-host, Louisa Lim. Our editing is by Andy Hazel, background research by Julia Bergen, our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.